everyone. We're reading from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Yes, we are on this last message from 1 John. And for the past few weeks, we've looked at different assurances that we have as Christians. In fact, John says, as Sua read, that we have confidence. There's assurance. We know. And what are some of the assurances that we spoke of? There's the assurance of eternal life, the assurance of answered prayer, the assurance of freedom from sin's power. We have the assurance as identity as God's children. We have assurance um, for the protection from the devil. And then this week, we're looking at our final assurance, which is the assurance we know the true God. We're looking at specifically verses 20 and 21. What's interesting is that verse 21 seems odd. The fact that he mentions little children, keep yourselves from idols. It seems It might seem sort of out of place, but when you think about it, it's the flip side. It's the other side of the coin of knowing the true God. That is to say that on one side, you know the true God. On the negative is keep yourself from false gods. So John's essentially saying the same thing, but he's using a very practical means by which he's able to describe to us what it means to know the true God. How do we do this? And so I want to look again at verse 20 to understand, first of all, what John is saying about this true God. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. John's gone to great lengths to show us who Jesus is, how knowing Jesus transforms our lives, and how that transformed life then should impact, must impact the world that we live in. Remember in 1 John 1.3, John sort of gives the other side of what it means to know the true God. He's almost bookending this letter by 
uh, basically restating the same thing in different words. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John wants us to have fellowship with the true God, that we should be in relationship with him. And the sole means by which we have this fellowship with God, according to First uh, John 1, 3, is through his son. And that's exactly what verse 20 is telling us. So the only way that it is possible to have this relationship, John tells us in verse 20, is that he's given us understanding. Now, what does he mean by that? And how does that give us assurance? There's a, a few ways in which that understanding gives us assurance. First of all, we know that when he gives us understanding, we see that God initiates that understanding for us. He has given it to us. It's not something that we ourselves work for. It's something that we receive. It's a gift. That is to say that we cannot come to him on our own. He opens our eyes. And that's very much in line with the way the New Testament describes people who turn and gain understanding about who Jesus is. There's a story of Lydia. She is the rich woman who is from uh, Theratira. And listen to how Luke describes her conversion. Acts chapter 16, verse 14 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theratira, uh, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul is speaking, but it's the Lord who opens her heart. She doesn't decide to hear herself. She has to have her heart opened so that she can understand what Paul is saying. That's also similar to a man by the name of Nicodemus. He comes at night. He's a Pharisee. And he wants to listen to Jesus and he's afraid that others, his, his colleagues are going to mock him or be upset at him. So he goes to Jesus at night and he asks, how does someone actually know God? And Jesus answers in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's really important because there's a sequence to that. The, the sequence is that you cannot see or understand God and his kingdom unless you are born again. So the born again happens first. There's a, a change, a transformation that God does because no one gives birth to themselves. There's a birthing about by somebody else. And therefore, after that, they're able to see God. So after someone is born of the spirit, he can understand, he can know, he can see. In that sense, understanding is truly a gift. Now, what's the application here? That is to say that, you know, we, we are called to have conversations, to study, to listen, but that in and of itself will not cause us to understand who Jesus is and to worship him and to delight in him. We can hear but we don't really hear. Jesus actually went to great lengths to tell the people of Israel that there are going to be many who hear, but they do not have ears. There are people who have eyes, but they do not see. And so just because you hear and you put yourself into positions where you actually know intellectually 
what it means to be a believer of Jesus. Unless your eyes are opened to him by God through his spirit, we cannot know him. And so from an application perspective, it means what is the number one thing you must do, you and I must do, especially for someone we love or care about, for them to know and to understand. We have to pray. Because actually, we can talk and we should. We should have conversation. We should answer questions. We should study together. But let us not think that the study, the conversation, the rationale, the the logical thinking in and of itself is going to change a person. Only by the grace of God, as a gift of God, can people come to understand. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James says the right, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The reason why that prayer is powerful and effective is not because there is some special power that the righteous person has. It's that the righteous person already knows they're righteous in Christ, recognizes that the power of salvation belongs to God alone. And so when they pray, they're crying out to God and saying, God, open the ears and eyes of this person. Because apart from you, they will not see or hear. They will not truly understand. And I think all of us know this to be true. Many of us know a family member, a friend, a coworker who is so close to God. I mean, in your mind, everything makes sense. If they could only know, their life would be so much better. But you see their track. You see their road. It's a difficult road. It's a dark road. And you, you're thinking to yourself, if they just surrender their life to Jesus, if everything, if they were to just do that, they would be so much happier. But no matter how much you turn and talk to them, you might have handed books to them. You might have had many conversations. You might have shared the gospel with them. But sometimes the more you hand books and share the gospel, the harder their hearts become. Again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't share the gospel, you shouldn't share books, or you shouldn't walk alongside with them and answer questions. Do those things. But never think that that act itself leads to someone's understanding. And I do think that because we think that way, whether we want to truly believe it or not, we get discouraged so quickly. Because in our minds, when we believe something so deeply and we give a book Or we answer questions that seem to make sense and they don't respond. We just sort of raise our hands and say, they're never going to get it. We become discouraged and we, we don't persist. We give up. What we fail to see is that there is no way someone is going to turn to the Lord unless he opens their eyes. Again, to sort of explain this so the next this next phase of understanding is this idea of understanding. What is it? So then you might be thinking, what is understanding? Like, what does it mean that they really understand as John speaks of? This word is often translated in the New Testament as mind. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your understanding, with all your mind. Meaning that's the place where you come to rest and believe where things just suddenly click. And for many Christians, that's happened. Actually, things that didn't make sense suddenly make sense. The Bible that was, but a mere storybook becomes a treasure. And 
it moves away from intellectual knowledge or the knowledge that your parents gave you because they forced you to go to church when you were young. You learned Bible stories, you did all these things. If you grew up in a Christian home, but just because you grew up in a Christian home does not mean you have understanding. Doesn't mean that you love with your mind. And again, this is not intellectual knowledge. That is to say that there are people who appreciate the church. They like the church because it has good qualities, good morals. Maybe it's a social place where a lot of different nice, kind people are. Maybe you're thinking, I want to bring my kids to a church because it has a good moral base. And again, you can recount Bible stories and lessons. But when you hear the gospel, you might understand it intellectually, but it hasn't sunk in deep where there's understanding. There's no, aha, it makes sense now. My mind is open. I finally get it. You see, the first part, the going to church, the listening to the stories without the understanding is called religion. And the second one where you actually understand is called relationship. Religion has knowledge, but no understanding. Relationships have knowledge with understanding. And when you understand, it impacts your soul. Let me give you an example. I remember when I first moved to the Bay Area, people would say, you should go to Yosemite. It's such a beautiful place. And I saw pictures and it, it looked beautiful. But it wasn't until I actually went, went to the valley floor, looked at Half Dome and El Capitan and hiked up to Glacier Point. My family and I watched a, a meteor shower up there. We, we, you know, saw all the different waterfalls. And when you're there, you just realize what everyone was talking about. It's so different actually being in the midst of the grandeur, the, the, the splendor, the majesty versus hearing someone tell you a story about it. That's why actually when we have mission spotlights and some, a team comes up and says, you know, we were so blessed. We went to Africa and, or we went to Spain or we went to Asia and, and God used this and, and you watch it and you see their pictures and you go, Oh, that's nice. That's nice. But it doesn't really hit you until you actually go. That's why George constantly says, come to Africa. Don't just, people always ask him, why don't you just send, instead of me going and paying $3,000 to go, I'll just write a check for $3,000. Doesn't that make more sense? And really it doesn't because when you go and you say, wow, I understand. And then it's not about $3,000. You might be giving your life to go there or you might be supporting them for the rest of your life. Do you see the difference between a religion and a relationship? A religion is seeing and just saying, well, why don't I just write a check for $3,000? It's about doing an obligation and a duty, but there's no mind, no understanding. But when the understanding is there, your life changes. You decide, I want to live differently. I am going to live differently. A great example of this in the Bible is... is the Apostle Paul, who was once Saul. And you know, in Acts chapter 9, he was out to destroy the church. He was going outside the boundaries of Israel to Damascus, which is today modern-day Syria, to persecute Christians there. He's going to drag them back, bring them in, to try them, imprison them, possibly kill them. So really, that's as dark as a heart can be against God. 
They are, he was so darkened, no one could have ever imagined Saul understanding. But listen to what happens. He, on the road, encounters Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he's blinded physically. He's physically blinded and he is to go to a Christian. His name is Ananias. And he's supposed to go there and meet him. Now, here's the interesting thing is when Jesus blinds him, it wasn't because Jesus was punishing him. It was actually because Jesus was showing him what his heart was like. His heart was spiritually blind. He was that darkened that the physical blindness was a physical manifestation of what his spiritual condition was. Now, with that in mind, right before he's baptized, he finally comes to believe. And look what Luke records in Acts chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. That word scales is literally the way it sounds. It's like fish scales. So imagine you're a nannyus or you're in that room. Uh, they're praying over him and suddenly these Scales, like fish scales, start coming out of his eyes. The understanding that happened, it was, it had a physical manifestation, but it was to reveal what was actually the, the full reality, a spiritual reality. And that's what it means when we truly understand. Like a person who has physical scales removed from their eyes, so too the, the heart of stone starts crumbling. And for the first time, our heart becomes flesh, as Ezekiel and Jeremiah write about. And trust me, when that happens, just as the blind person who rejoices that they can see, or the lame person who jumps in the air because they can now walk, so too the spiritually blind person, when they understand, there's a rejoicing. They see Jesus for the first time. Before they saw Jesus intellectually, they saw, heard the stories. Because that's why a Christian in a Christian family cannot rely on a parent's faith. It has to be understanding. Scales coming off of the heart, the, the heart stony, heart broken. And suddenly we see Jesus for the first time. Not just understanding though, there's truth. We're told that he is the true God. Jesus Christ is as John heard Jesus say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The exact opposite of the devil in terms of the idea of truth. Because the devil is the great liar, the, the deceiver. John says in verse 19 of chapter 5 of first, his first letter, John says that, he, uh, that the devil has power over the whole world. But look at the contrast. Jesus, as the truth, does not reign as king over the world. When Pilate asks him, are you the king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't live like a king. He was homeless. Every day he lived to get his daily bread. He suffered. He died a criminal's death. A really, really bad criminal, actually. And then consider this. When Jesus ascended into heaven, for at that time, Scholars say that for every one Christian, there was probably about 30 to 50,000 non-Christians in the world. And remember, the world was not as big as it is today in terms of population. 
meaning that there was no hope for Christianity to grow at that time. I mean, it doesn't make sense. From a metrics, numbers, statistical perspective, there's no way Christianity should have exploded the way that it did. Especially when you can consider that John is saying the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the, how does the gospel expand in that context? The only way is that Jesus has to be the truth. When there's truth, that will always bear itself out. And when there's truth, and when it's truly true, and people who know it to be true, their lives are transformed. And when their lives are transformed, they live as though they believe in the truth. And they're willing to do whatever it takes for other people to know that truth. Do you see how the, the gospel is God being truth through Christ his son? When people have understanding, their eyes are opened. They believe in the truth because they now see it to be true. Their lives are changed and then they go out and tell others, no matter the cost. Ravi Zacharias tells a story of Belgian missionary Joseph Damien. He lived in the 1800s and he has a, he had a heart and a, a desire to advance the kingdom of Christ. And so he went to the Hawaiian islands to the island of Molokai. And you might think, wow, what a great idea to be a missionary and go to Hawaii for a missionary. Well, in the 1800s, Molokai was a leper colony. No one went to Molokai. They all knew if you went there, you got leprosy. Obviously, it was a very contagious condition. And it was something that people avoided at all costs for fear of a contagion, which I think many of us understand. So when everyone was running away from Molokai, Joseph Damien decided to go and he loved them and he literally gave up his life for them. One morning as he was pouring some boiling water into a cup, the water swirled out of the cup and fell onto his bare foot. And he was rudely awakened by the fact that when the boiling water fell on his foot, he didn't feel it. And so he took some more hot boiling water and poured it onto his other foot. And there was no sensation at all. And he was terrified of the ramifications. He got ready that morning, went behind the pulpit, which he always did to preach to these lepers. And nobody knew why he changed his opening line. And he always started his sermons by saying, my fellow believers. But for the first time, he said, my fellow lepers. Now he was one of them. Ravi Zacharias comments, leprosy desensitizes you to the sensation of touch, but it does not desensitize you in reaching out in love. And that is what truth does. It transforms your life because you now have understanding. You know what it feels like to be loved, to be, to be sacrificed for, to be shown mercy and kindness and grace. And when that changes your life, then it impacts you and it causes you to go out and impact the world. It's what we need more than ever before. A changed, transformed people who understand will go out to this world and they will live differently and they will show the love of Christ to others, regardless of the cost. That's what it means to know Jesus as what is true. Again, the other side of that coin is to also know what is false. 
to have the assurance that we know what is false. According to verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John is a pastor at heart. He has a pastoral heart and he wants the church to know they are loved. They are little children. They, he is their father and he cares for them and he loves them and he warns them, keep yourselves from idols. It's not strange when we think that this ultimate truth about Jesus is about remembering him to be true and idolatry to be false. And when we see Jesus as precious, we don't want to yield to what is false. But frankly, we so often do yield to what is false. John ends this letter this way because he knows we're so prone to long for idols. There's a reason why he's telling the church, keep yourselves from idols, because he knows that's our natural instinctive direction. It's why he has spent this whole letter repeating himself, telling us to keep away from sin. Remember who Jesus is. Remember how much he loves you. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what it means to believe what is true. Hymn writer Robert Robinson expresses this heart well when he writes in Come Thou Fount. We're going to sing this part, this part of the uh, song later. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robin, Robert Robinson wrote those words because he read Romans one twenty four. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. What Paul is saying is that if God were to take away his gracious hands, you know what happens to us? We want anything but God. That's just how we're inclined to be. We're inclined to actually go after idols. That's what the sin nature is. It says that I don't need God. I can do things on my own. And I will choose something other than God to trust and to place my hope in. And so all of us instinctively desire to move away from God. That's why that hymn, Come Thou Fount, says it so well. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. How many of us have felt that? I know I have. This sense that my natural instinct is to turn away from God and I need the, the idea, the reminder of God who is true, who is faithful, who always acts. It's why John says in 1 John 1, 3, have fellowship with God, with one another. What are idols? Idols are anything that we displace God with, anything. Anything that we trust for our ultimate security, our comfort, our affection, our love, our delight, our peace, our joy, any alternate ultimate of those things is an idol. That which you find essential to you. That means it could be children. It could be narcotics. It could be money. It could be your hard-earned career. It could be your beautiful face. One way to consider your idol is this. What do you cherish most in the world? Or maybe something like this. What I want you to think about, if you are a Christian, and let's say, I love God. I love Jesus above all else. And then secondly, I, I really appreciate this. This is, my, this is what I've invested into. This is what I'm committed to. Whatever that second is, just to let you know, that's probably always going to fight for first. 
if you are thinking, because most Christians will say, oh, Jesus is first and then my spouse is second. My career is second. My work, you know, my, my money, my car, my home. Whatever is second in your life, probably that's actually many times first. That's a good way to think about it because when you do that, you realize that's what you're placing your hope in. And that is your greatest temptation, as well as it's what the enemy and the devil is going to use to separate you because he is the great separator, to separate you from God. Know that every good gift that you have is an opportunity for your heart to worship that gift above God. That's our nature. And you, again, you have to understand, Paul says in Romans 1.24 that God, when God gives you up, meaning he lets go of preventing you, of driving you, of dragging you away from this idol, that we're going to go towards that direction. That's who we are. And so when you say, Lord, I surrender this to you, do you really surrender it? Are you really willing to give it up? You know what is the true test of it? Is it's taken away from you. Will you still worship the Lord? As Job says, though you slay me, I will trust you. Though you take that, whatever's number two, away, I will still worship you. I will still glorify you. Another thing about idols is that idols are often hidden because we can't really tell. We, we like to, again, we like to prop them up, especially as Christians, to say, no, no, I don't really struggle with that. Remember Rachel? She hid her household idols under her when her uncle Laban went to go chase down Jacob and his, her, his whole family. And they were physical idols that she hid. Well, that often happens with spiritual idols as well. They're often hidden. The idolatry of religion. No one else knows. So whether you are serving at church, giving support, whatever, all the things that we do that seem so spiritual, in our heart, maybe it's our way of saying, see, Lord, I am actually pretty good. I am moral. I am righteous on my own, apart from Christ. That's a very hidden idolatry. Maybe it's a study of theology, attending church, preaching, shepherding, spiritual gifts. All of these can look so beautiful, yet be idols. This past week, I happened to um, see a news story about a, a famous pastor who had actually fallen recently due to some really inappropriate remarks and spiritual abuse that he had done. Well, his house happens to be on sale in the Chicagoland area. And it's it's on the market, and there are all these pictures. And it's a beautiful house, $1.6 million. Everything is custom built. And because we're in the middle of constructing our building, I get a sense of how expensive custom built everything is. And it's an incredibly beautiful house with all sorts of rooms. And inherently, I'm not saying that there's something in and of itself evil or wrong. But looking at that palatial house, it makes you realize, wow, that was really important to him. Very important. And that is a, very much a testament as to what is a person's greatest treasure? How they spend their money. That's how it is. Jesus said that. He said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. How you're spending your money, what you're investing most of what you have 
is really where, whether we want to admit it or not, is where the hidden idols are. And if we look at our budget, our possessions, that usually shows what we cherish the most. And the question is, if you were to lose it, if your idol is ever threatened, when your idol is threatened, guess what happens? You know it's being threatened by worry, anger, frustration, envy. If one or all of these are a part of your life, whatever you are worried about, angry about, frustrated about, or envious about, those are your idols. It's just very clear. We can't hide them actually when that happens. They are a manifestation of idolatry. You know, I wanted to give you this metaphor. Idols, idols are sort of like parasites for your soul. Parasites, they burrow deep into your body. You ingest something, you eat something, and then a little worm or a bug comes out and it starts eating away at all of the food that you eat, all the nutrients. So you, you can be eating a lot, but you start actually losing weight, you become less healthy. And your body is wasting away because this parasite is eating all of the good things that you're taking in. And so you're getting more frail, more weak, and none of your nutrients are taking hold. And you don't even know why you're dying of malnutrition. That's idolatry. Idolatry is a parasite for your soul. And the more you are invested in in something other than Christ, it starts revealing itself in worry and anger and frustration and envy. And it starts sucking away the nutrients of, our, of your soul. And is it any wonder that when you pick up the Bible, it's boring? When you listen to a sermon, you're sitting around saying, oh, I've heard this before. It just doesn't come. There's no understanding. The scales don't come off. Because the parasite of idolatry is sucking away every nutrient. Like the rich young ruler who had the, who was filled with the parasite of wealth. And he had all sorts of effects. It kept, it kept him from opening his heart to Jesus, which led to his demise. If you want to change, the first place to look is to this idea of what is your idol? What are you believing in? That is your false security, your, your false promise. And again, just ask the question, what am I worried about? What am I angry about? What am I frustrated about? What do I envy? That is the parasite for your soul. There is an answer. And the answer is first have people pray for you. Ask people, say, Lord, I need help. And I need people to, I need the understanding. I need my eyes to be open to Jesus, to what is true, to who is true. John's letter, let me conclude with this, is a stark warning for all of us. On the positive side, we know that, as John said, perfect love casts out fear, as we saw in 1 John 4. I'm going to bring you back to a number of the different statements that John has made throughout this letter. Remember the promise of 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope understanding fills your soul with that. And then those cherished words that tell us that we are children of our God. 1 John 3 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, so we are. 
And all of this is possible because of the gospel truth. Because he is true. First John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved us. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to the propitiation for our sins. And so because of this, we respond to this love. First John 4.11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But there are antichrists, many antichrists against you. Chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2.18, who are pushing you away, who are trying to shield your eyes from Jesus. They want you to deny Jesus as Savior, as the Son of God. Chapter 2, verse 22. They want you to turn away from God. But instead, they want you to turn to another love, to love the world. Remember 1 John 2.15-16? through 16? Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is John's warning against idols again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You don't have understanding. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The scales are still over the eyes. When you have scales, you only see very limited what's just right in front of you. I mean, we have spiritual glaucoma. We can't see. And then there's the great separator, the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And his desire, the devil's desire, is that we turn away from what is true and turn towards idols. But take heart. We know with assurance, according to 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God and the whole world... Um, who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We also know this, according to verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We also know, according to verse 20, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The parasite can be killed. So often, when we begin to look away, we need to ask, why am I so weak? Why am I so frail, so unnerved, so angry? I need a Savior. Only in this crippling weakness, when we come to Him and say, Oh Lord, open my eyes. He is faithful and just. He will open them. When we surrender all of our idols, hidden and visible, the great physician comes through his cross, through his obedience, through his life, through his wrath-bearing cost, he sets us free forever so that we can be called by the God of love as sons and daughters. It's the wonderful promise of the gospel. And I hope you understand to know him, to know that truth, He who the sun sets free is free indeed. Let's prepare our hearts for communion.